You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon, Episode 7, The Undesired. Thanks for joining me. Well, here we are at last, the first episode on the French Revolution. The original plan was to lay it all out in one show, but there was a lot of listener interest in more in-depth coverage, and there's just so much to say, so I ended up breaking it up into two episodes. This was the formative event of Napoleon Bonaparte's life. In his own correspondence, he observed that a person's politics are usually most shaped by events in their young adulthood. In writing that, I think he had his own experience of the revolution in mind. Napoleon was 19 years old when the Bastille fell. He spent essentially his entire adult life reckoning with the consequences of the revolution. Napoleon was far from unique in that respect. The fall of the House of Bourbon and the rise of the French Republic was a political and intellectual earthquake. This was the single dominant historical event for almost every politically aware person of Napoleon's generation in the Western world. The legacy of the revolution was the central debate of the 19th century. It led to the formation of the political ideologies of liberalism, conservatism, and reaction, and indirectly to the foundation of socialism, anarchism, communism, and fascism. You could make a good argument we're still grappling with the events of 1789. As we move along the narrative of Napoleon's life, we'll watch a lot of the revolution unfold through his eyes. In some cases, literally. He was actually an eyewitness and ground-level participant in some of the key events of this era. But with such a massively important event, I thought it would be useful to get a bird's-eye overview first, just so we're all on the same page when this stuff starts cropping up in our story. Today I'd like to focus on the early events of the revolution. I'm particularly interested in the fall of Louis of Bourbon, from a generally popular monarch with absolute power to an impotent figurehead captive to a hostile public. At the beginning of his reign, Louis XVI was loved by the people of France. When he was still a crown prince, the press sometimes called him the desired one because he seemed caring and down-to-earth compared to his distant, misanthropic grandfather. It was traditional for the King of France to receive a large cash gift when he took the throne. When Louis was crowned in 1774, he donated all of his coronation money to charity, the equivalent of millions of dollars today. Even the most jaded tabloid gossip mongers had to admit it showed character. Louis was signaling that he wanted to be a different kind of king. The public was far more skeptical of the new queen, Marie Antoinette. She was a Habsburg, and Austria was France's greatest rival. But even she won them over in those early days. Marie Antoinette reinvented the role of queen by taking an active role in raising funds and awareness for charitable causes, kind of like a modern American first lady. Medical services for the poor was her signature issue. But the royal administration was in a deep crisis. Things were bad when Louis took the throne, and got worse quickly. 
Good intentions are a fine thing in a leader, but long-term political popularity requires results. French government spending far exceeded revenue. The treasury was nearing empty. Increasingly, the government had to borrow to stay afloat, and inevitably its credit got worse. Every year, a bigger proportion of the state budget went to simply paying the minimum interest on all these loans. For years, the king's ministers had been aware there was a problem, and they tried different policies to address it, but the system needed a complete overhaul, not cautious piecemeal reform. There were proposals to do just that, but anything broad or ambitious enough to really turn the tide inevitably fell victim to the sclerotic, conservative political system. The kingdom was getting deeper into the red at the worst possible time. In periods of famine, the people of France relied on the government to provide relief in the form of subsidies, price controls, and emergency grain imports. The 1770s and 1780s saw a series of bad harvests and natural disasters. Increasingly, average men and women struggled to feed their families. Some starved. The people of France needed the help of the royal government more than ever, just as it was least able to provide relief due to the financial situation. There wasn't much of a political relationship between the king and his subjects, but one of the few things people did expect from their monarch was that they would be able to get enough to eat. The king was seen as the guarantor of the grain supply, so a threat to the people's food security was also a threat to the monarchy's popularity and legitimacy. Contrary to popular belief, the royal government didn't just watch indifferently while people starved. They tried dozens of different policies to get things under control, but by the late 1780s, the crisis was just too big for this weak government to handle, especially as its hands were tied tighter and tighter every year by the financial situation. As the food crisis mounted, unrest grew. There were riots and isolated acts of violence by desperate, hungry people. An atmosphere of anger, fear, and paranoia began to creep in all over the country. In earlier episodes, we talked about the Parlement, regional assemblies of nobles that kind of functioned like law courts and could block royal decrees when they felt the interests of the nobility were threatened. Well, with the government racing to solve the food crisis and looming financial meltdown, decrees were coming out of Versailles at a pace and scope not seen since the days of Louis XIV. With hindsight, we can see that they were acting out of desperation, but to the Parlement, it looked like the government was cynically exaggerating a crisis to justify a power grab. The harder the king tried to reform the country, the more the Parlement were convinced that their rights were under threat and they had to resist. The Parlement tried out a new tactic in their struggle with Louis XVI, something we're probably overly familiar with. They used the press to try to sway public opinion might be odd to think of this as new, but there really hadn't been much of a public before this period. In earlier eras, most people who were well-informed on current affairs and educated enough to understand them were aristocrats, political players in their own right, not an uninvolved public observing politics and forming their opinions from afar. But by this era, there was increasingly a population of literate, politically aware commoners, men and women who were probably like most of you listening, not personally involved in the government, but who read or debated enough about politics to have their own opinions on the performance of the government and the future direction of the country. In 18th century France, most of these people came from the middle class. 
They tended to have pro-Enlightenment liberal sympathies, and so that's what the public relations campaign of the Parlement played on. This was really just a squabble between factions of the ruling class. The king and his administration were fighting for their interests, and the nobility were fighting for theirs. But the Parlement painted it as a grand clash of principles, a fight for freedom. They published pamphlets and essays arguing the Parlement weren't just defending their own interests and tax exemptions, but taking a stand for French liberty against the tyranny of the king. The literate public ate it up. The king's legitimacy was already taking a hit from the food crisis, and these Enlightenment-influenced arguments coming from the Parlement gave people an ideological and philosophical framework with which to express their discontent. Louis' plan to push reform through the Parlement was doomed. As this public debate raged, some voices began to call for a meeting of the Estates General, the elected national legislative body that hadn't met in over a century. But Louis didn't want to call a meeting of the Estates. Like his predecessors, he considered the institution too powerful and unpredictable. But reform was going nowhere, the financial situation was becoming more desperate, and the idea was gaining traction among the public. The king had lost the initiative. The government spent most of 1787 and 1788 engaged in all kinds of political footwork attempting to sidestep the issue, but in the summer of 1788 they ran out of time. The royal treasury was officially empty. The government's credit was ruined. Few would risk loaning money to the king. Those who did charged astronomical rates of interest. Very soon, the government would be forced into drastic measures like liquidating assets, paying employees in IOUs, or even defaulting on debts. In the winter of 1788, a group of bankers offered a massive package of loans to the government, but only under the condition that the king call the estates general and empower them to reform the economy and tax system. In January 1789, the king finally relented and ordered elections for a meeting of the estates to be convened in the spring. This was a momentous announcement. The only precedent was in the distant past, in a very different society with different political dynamics. There was suddenly a potential for change and new possibilities for the future. In a modern American context, you might compare it to calling a new constitutional convention. The Estates General had three chambers. The first estate was the church. They were there to represent the interests of French Catholicism as an institution, but they were also human beings and carried their own personal views with them. The leadership was overrepresented, cardinals, bishops, abbots, Almost all of them came from noble families, and many had connections to the royal court. But the majority of the seats in the first estate were actually reserved for the rank-and-file clergy, and many of them sympathized with the commoners. The second estate represented the nobility. Almost all of the eminent aristocrats of France had a seat, including men of the royal court and the king's close male relatives. But as we discussed in episode 5, the nobility was not a uniform group. There were poor nobles represented as well, and men whose families had only been aristocrats for a generation or two. Generally, the second estate was the most conservative of the three bodies, the most supportive of the status quo. But even here, there was a significant minority of liberals. Many were disciples of the Enlightenment, others just saw that the current system was broken. The third estate represented everyone else in France, the 98 or 99 percent of Frenchmen who weren't aristocrats or ordained Catholic clergy, everyone from Parisian bankers to the starving sans-culottes, 
from Bordeaux merchants to migrant farm workers. In theory, this was a chamber for everyone. In practice, it was dominated by the bourgeoisie. Few others had the time, money, and education to inform themselves on political issues and run for office. There were some businessmen and bankers, but the delegates of the Third Estate tended to be what we would call white-collar professionals, civil servants, doctors, and especially lawyers. This was by far the most liberal and pro-reform chamber of the Estates General. Most delegates came from the upper middle class, they generally felt undervalued and ignored in the current system, and were enthusiastic about Enlightenment ideals. On May 5th, 1789, the Estates General officially opened. Ominously, only a few weeks earlier, Parisian workers had risen up in a violent riot. It had taken the army days to contain the chaos, at the cost of 25 dead. Anyone who thought calling the Estates General would solve all the country's problems was quickly disappointed. The government was still paralyzed by infighting. The only real difference was now it was between the king and the liberal delegates instead of the king and the parlement. Just as Louis had feared, the Estates General did not defer to royal authority. The way the liberal delegates saw it, the king himself had given them a broad mandate to reform the country, and they were the legitimate representatives of the people of France. Their view of themselves as elected officials was not unlike the one embraced in most modern democracies. They felt they were entrusted with a duty to give voice to their constituents and use their judgment to advocate for the common good. The king and his allies did not see things that way. They were still steeped in that absolutist view of the king as the metaphorical embodiment of the country. His will was the country's will. In their eyes, the liberal delegates were just a group of willful, insolent subjects taking advantage of the crisis to act out like wayward children. Louis vacillated in his approach to the Estates General. The king was not a particularly vindictive or reactionary person, but he was very pliable, and some of his advisors were. Louis had no confidence in his own judgment. Time and again, he would allow hardline members of the court to talk him into some uncompromising authoritarian position, then have second thoughts and allow himself to be swayed the other direction. On several occasions, the king came right to the precipice of ordering a crackdown on the liberal opposition, only to change his mind at the last minute. The reactionary faction at court had managed to convince the king to quietly amass a small army of loyal troops near Paris. But opposing advice and his own peaceful nature prevented Louis from pulling the trigger and ordering the troops in to dissolve the Estates General. While Louis wallowed in indecision, the opposition gained momentum. Liberal clergymen began defecting from their chamber and sitting with the commoners in the Third Estate instead. Delegates of the Third Estate and their supporters began to refer to it as the National Assembly, reflecting their belief that the Third Estate represented the will of the whole country, not just one class. On the 19th of June, 1789, the king finally made up his mind. His reactionary advisors had finally won him over. The crackdown was in motion. The delegates of the National Assembly gathered the next morning and found their meeting place locked up, guarded by soldiers. Legally, the king still had the power to unilaterally dissolve the assembly, and even to arrest any members he wished. The delegates quickly realized that closing down their meeting place would probably be the first step to doing something like that. So, the National Assembly took decisive action of their own. 
They moved their meeting to the nearest space that could accommodate them, the tennis courts at Versailles, and immediately voted to pass a momentous resolution. Quote, All members of this assembly shall immediately take a solemn oath not to separate, and to reassemble wherever circumstances require, until the constitution of the kingdom is established and consolidated upon firm foundations. End quote. In effect, they were finally throwing down the gauntlet to the king and demanding a written constitution. This event has become famous as the Tennis Court Oath. It was all very dramatic, but it was also a smart piece of political maneuvering. The delegates had surmised that the king would soon issue a decree dissolving the assembly, and or ordering some of its members arrested. The oath effectively preempted that decree. Remember, this oath wasn't just some guys in a gym making a promise to each other. They were a legislature, this was proposed as a resolution, and passed by majority vote. Once the tennis court oath was approved, if the king followed through and ordered a crackdown, they would have a solid legal foundation to resist it, because his orders would be in violation of their legal resolution. Pretty clever, right? Like I said, a lot of these guys were lawyers. And it worked. Yet again, the king backed down and shifted to a more conciliatory stance. He agreed to work with the National Assembly. Priests and monks from the First Estate were now leaving their chamber in droves to sit with the Assembly. Even some liberal nobles from the Second Estate joined them. When the king threatened them, the bourgeois delegates of the National Assembly responded with defiance and won. That's why the Tennis Court Oath is still one of the most celebrated events of the Revolution. It was a moment of bravery in the face of danger, loaded with human drama and symbolic significance. Accounts of the events of June 20th and the text of the Tennis Court Oath crackled through France in the following weeks. The National Assembly had been popular from the start, but now they were national heroes. All over the country, especially in Paris, the public took up their call for a constitution. The men who swore the oath were mostly well-heeled professionals. But the news was greeted with joy in the slums and on workshop floors in Paris, just as it was in the fashionable neighborhoods and salons. The starving poor of the city were much more desperate and frightened than any bourgeois legislator, but they'd come to blame much of their suffering on the royal government. The way most of them saw it, anybody who was trying to challenge this system that left them miserable was one of the good guys, even if they were a bunch of fancy-pants lawyers. The tennis court oath may have raised the spirits of poor Parisians, but it didn't provide any relief to their dire material conditions. By 1789, the average unskilled worker in Paris was spending the majority of his or her income just on bread. And they were the lucky ones. There had always been a large underclass of unemployed and semi-employed people in the city. And with the economy in crisis, that population grew every day. Workers were laid off, desperate peasants came into the city looking for work. Attacks on bakeries and grain merchants were becoming common. Sometimes they devolved into riots. But these outbursts didn't really help let off steam. Conditions remained bad, and the mood on the street just kept heating up. The boiling point was reached on July 12, 1789, after news reached the city that the king had abruptly dismissed his finance minister, Jacques Necker. Necker was far and away the most high-profile and popular figure in the royal administration. He was actually pretty bad as a finance minister and incompetent as a politician, but he was one of the most visible advocates of liberal reform, and people loved him. 
As often happened when there was big news, the people of Paris congregated in the streets to hear reports read out loud, listen to impromptu speeches, chat with each other, and share rumors. Seeing the man they viewed as their champion unceremoniously booted out of politics was the final insult. Rumors of a royal crackdown began to spread, and these groups that had gathered in the streets began to take on the character of angry mobs. This was not the first time Paris had seen mob violence related to the crisis, but it was soon obvious this was something different, much bigger, and potentially much more dangerous. There was no riot policing in the 18th century, so as they always did in these situations, the authorities called out the military garrison. This was a permanent garrison of Paris. The soldiers lived in the city full-time and thought of themselves as Parisians. They drank and socialized in all the same hangouts as other working-class people of the city. So the garrison's officers had begun to doubt their men's loyalty. But on July 12th, the situation deteriorated so quickly, the authorities saw little other option but to call them out anyway and just hope they obeyed. Most did not. A few groups of soldiers maintained discipline and clashed with the mobs, but the majority defected immediately. There was now a large segment of the mob with military armaments and training. This sent a wave of paralyzing doubt through the army command. Which units could they trust? Sending out more regiments to confront the mob might just lead to more defections and make the situation worse. So they did nothing. By the evening of the 12th, Paris belonged to the mob. In the absence of any civil authority, looting began. The rioters took special care to target any place where weapons or alcohol were stored. A mood of exuberance developed alongside their anger. That night, the whole city was consumed in a kind of angry, drunken party. Most Parisians were having the time of their lives, but things had gone way too far for many of the bourgeoisie. They were angry about Necker's dismissal too, but as property owners, they were not excited about all the looting. Of course, they sympathized with the rioters, but come on, this nonsense was getting in the way of business. Understandable sentiments may be, but the calculus is different for a starving person with nothing to lose. The bourgeoisie wanted order restored, but like everyone in Paris, they worried a military assault would cause even more death and destruction and lead to the long-feared crackdown on the opposition. So, the middle classes of Paris began to organize a provisional city government of their own, and raise a militia. The men of this force would come from the bourgeoisie, and it would be loyal to the assembly. For those of you who know your revolutionary history, this unit would grow into the famous National Guard. On the morning of the 14th of July, the organizers of this new National Guard were busy gathering equipment. They were able to seize a large number of muskets without too much trouble, but the military's main cache of ammunition would be a challenge. Most of the shot and gunpowder in Paris had been moved to a more secure location, an old medieval fortification on the outskirts of town called the Bastille. The Bastille was protected by massive walls, artillery, and a moat with a drawbridge, and its garrison had stayed loyal. The mob wanted those ammunition stores, but the fortress was also an attractive target for symbolic reasons. In the past, it had been used as a jail for high-profile prisoners, including political dissidents. As with any highly visible, secured location, there were wild urban legends about what happened within those walls. Rumors about mysterious prisoners and exotic tortures. 
In the French popular imagination, the Bastille was like Guantanamo Bay plus Area 51. But it wasn't hidden away in some remote location. It was right there, looming on the edge of Paris, constantly reminding people of all these grisly rumors, like some kind of monument to tyranny. As a crowd began to form around the fortress on the morning of the 14th, they must have felt a sense of dread contemplating that reputation. I think that's part of the reason the storming of the Bastille took such a long time. In popular culture, you only ever see the final climactic moments, but that didn't happen until the evening. This was an all-day affair. The commander of the Bastille wasn't some trigger-happy barbarian. He actually invited a delegation from the crowd to enter the fortress and spent hours negotiating with them. The mob's demands were pretty simple. They wanted the garrison to step down, that cache of ammunition handed over, and all prisoners released. All prisoners amounted to fewer than a dozen totally unremarkable people, none of whom were dissidents. But of course, nobody in the crowd knew that. These negotiations did not get far. The commander was willing to budge a little on the first demand, but he held firm on the second too. Meanwhile, the crowd outside was getting impatient, and in their impatience became bolder. By the early afternoon, they were advancing close to the fortress, and the garrison was getting spooked. Sure, the soldiers were inside a massive stone fortress, but there were only 83 of them, and they were staring down thousands of angry Parisians, many of whom were armed. By now it had been hours since that delegation entered the fortress, and some in the crowd were beginning to worry they would never come out. This was a terrifying place. They had all heard the stories. Maybe their delegation was already in that famous dungeon, being subjected to unspeakable torture. As the mob grew more restless, a few brave Parisians ventured close enough to pull the drawbridge down, and the crowd surged closer to the main building of the fortress. The next sequence of events is unclear, but around 1.30 in the afternoon, a firefight broke out between armed members of the mob and the garrison. This continued sporadically all afternoon. Groups of soldiers from the Paris garrison who had defected and joined the mob on the 12th heard the sound of gunfire and, without orders, rushed to the scene, muskets in hand, to defend the revolution. This was starting to look like a military engagement. At 5 p.m., the commander of the Bastille offered terms for a truce. The crowd refused. They were angry they felt the garrison had fired on them without provocation and demanded unconditional surrender. Obviously, the Bastille had plenty of ammunition for a long siege, but no supplies of food or water. The commander had little choice. He ordered his men to lay down their arms, and the crowd flooded in. Nearly 100 Parisians and one soldier from the Bastille garrison had been killed. The mob took their revenge in a brutal slaughter of the commander and several of the officers. So the Bastille wasn't taken in some grand assault like you see in romantic depictions. Nobody had wanted to fight a battle over the fortress, not the crowd, not the commander, and certainly not the garrison. This so-called storming may have unfolded by accident, but it was a political earthquake. The people of Paris had a new sense of their own power. They felt they'd taken on the force of the king's government and won. Thousands of Parisians came to tour the fortress. They walked freely without fear through the halls of this notorious place that they'd viewed with dread their whole lives. There hadn't been much of a battle, but psychologically, they must have really felt like they'd conquered something unconquerable and destroyed something evil. 
Nobody at Versailles knew exactly what was happening, but they were receiving reports of unrest in Paris. As early as the night of the 12th, one of Louis's advisors used the word revolution for the first time. True to form, Louis didn't take this advice very seriously, and couldn't make up his mind on a response. On the afternoon of the 14th, while the garrison of the Bastille were cornered, outnumbered, and fighting in the king's name, he was out on a hunting trip. Reports of the fall of the Bastille reached the king on the morning of the 15th, and that shock seems to be what finally woke Louis up. To his credit, the king quickly realized the crackdown advocated by his reactionary advisors was now off the table. Events had moved too far. The only course open to him now was to make peace with the liberal opposition. Louis ordered the army amassed around Paris to return to their home depots. He signaled his willingness to work with the assembly and recognized the provisional city government formed by the Paris bourgeoisie, including its militia. With the king's blessing, they offered command of the National Guard to Gilbert de Motier, the Marquis de Lafayette. Lafayette had been a liberal icon since his service under George Washington in the American War of Independence, and more recently was an outspoken leader of the opposition. His deepest held hope was to follow in the footsteps of Washington, a man he viewed as a second father, and here he was being given command over a revolutionary militia, just as Washington had. Lafayette began to believe that maybe the dream was coming true, that maybe it wasn't just hope or ambition, but destiny. With all these concessions, public opinion of Louis began to turn around almost instantly. Nobody at this stage was advocating abolishing the monarchy. Most French people couldn't envision the country without a king. They wanted to like him, and now he finally seemed to be listening to the opposition and coming around to their point of view. Louis visited Paris on July 17th, and again, you've got to give him credit, this took some guts. It had only been three days since the city was in anarchy and mobs were murdering royal officials. The risk paid off. He got a great reception. The people of Paris thronged the streets, shouting, Long live the king! Louis arrived at City Hall to meet with the new government, and they too gave him a gracious, deferential welcome. Someone gave the king a tricolor cockade. This had become a major symbol of the revolution. They were cloth badges of blue, white, and red that people would pin to their clothes to show their support for the opposition. Louis turned to the crowd and dramatically pinned the cockade to his hat. Everyone went wild. And that's how France became a constitutional monarchy. Everyone lived happily ever after, the end. I'm kidding, of course, but wouldn't that be a perfect ending? But this wasn't a movie or a novel, and there was no way that was happening. Louis was who he was. He didn't have the vision or force of personality to spearhead such a dramatic transformation, and the actual material conditions of the crisis had become far too severe to be solved with some grand political gesture, however dramatic. While the people of Paris were reaching their breaking point in the summer of 1789, things were getting just as bad in the countryside. A string of bad harvests made food prices go up all over France, but some places were hit worse than others. In some areas, people were dying of hunger en masse. Many peasants were forced to choose between feeding their families and honoring their financial obligations. No surprise, they opted for the former and stopped paying their feudal dues. Amazingly, few actually suffered any consequences for this. 
The average landlord was a faceless absentee figure who didn't know or care much about the operations of his properties. And many landlords were understandably distracted by the political situation. But most peasants didn't feel like they were getting away with something. They were always looking over their shoulders, always worried today would be the day the Lord's men showed up to extract some terrible penalty or inflict some horrible punishment. And what if the longer they went without paying, the worse it would be for them? So paranoia grew. Jumpy peasants saw debt collectors behind every tree and bush. As always happened in times of hunger, speculators became a popular scapegoat. There were attacks on the properties of rich men suspected of hoarding food. In some cases, they were even lynched. There really was a grain shortage. Most scholars agree hoarding was not a significant cause of the crisis. But no one at the time knew that, and it must have been seductive to starving peasants to put a face and a name on their suffering, to have someone to punish for it. All through the spring and summer of 1789, the crisis deepened. Unrest grew, and these attacks on alleged speculators became more frequent and more intense. Other desperate peasants turned to even more unscrupulous measures. Crime and banditry skyrocketed. With the government broke and distracted, The largest and most brazen of these outlaw bands openly raided settlements like marauding enemy armies. In this atmosphere of chaos and uncertainty, rumors spread like a plague. Some said nobles or the government were deliberately destroying the grain supply to drive up prices. Others said that these so-called bandits terrorizing the countryside were actually soldiers or mercenaries paid by the nobles to punish them for non-payment of dues. According to competing rumors, they were an invading foreign army who had slipped over the border while the king was distracted. Everyone could agree something serious was happening, they just weren't sure what to be afraid of. Just like in Paris, the situation in the countryside finally boiled over in the summer of 1789. There's no specific event or date we can point to, but in the midsummer of that year, Rural French society disintegrated into violence and confusion. This period is known as the Great Fear. It's hard to lay out a narrative of the Great Fear. Even the people personally involved were confused and didn't have a very clear picture of the overall situation or any long-term goals. They were just average people responding instinctively to a horrible situation. An atmosphere of desperation and paranoia had been building for years. Every day, the tension ratcheted up a little bit. Every day, a few more people stopped thinking about society, law, or morality, and began to focus only on their own survival. Terrified people commit desperate acts. Desperate acts tear at the social fabric and contribute to that growing climate of fear. That climate pushes more people to commit more desperate acts. Rural France was in a downward spiral towards chaos. Beginning in July of 1789, entire regions slipped into anarchy one by one, until almost the entire country was engulfed. The most common and significant feature of the Great Fear was crowds of angry peasants invading manor houses and chateaus, the official residences and business headquarters of their landlords. Sometimes people were killed in these attacks, but often no one actually lived in these houses. The invaders were usually after documents, not blood, records of debts, and the physical feudal contracts that laid out their financial obligations to their lords. 
On August 4, 1789, the National Assembly in Paris met to address disturbing reports they were receiving from rural France. They were beginning to recognize the scope of the events we know as the Great Fear. The delegates quickly and quite correctly identified the injustices of feudal privilege as a major source of peasant unrest. Ironically, it was liberal noblemen who were the first to raise the issue, but once it was broached, the floodgates opened. The assembly stayed in session into the wee hours of August 5th. Delegate after delegate rose up to denounce various aspects of feudalism, and one by one, almost every vestige of the old system was voted away. The people of France woke up on August 5th living in a different country, even if they didn't all know it yet. Everyone in the kingdom was legally equal. Noble privilege, feudal dues, and church tithes were abolished. The delegates had acted impulsively, swept away by liberal idealism, but despite their naivety, these noblemen and bourgeois lawyers had actually been correct in identifying and addressing one of the main sources of peasant discontent. News of this legislation actually did help calm things down in the countryside. The assembly was making real progress in their push to modernize and liberalize the country. But you can't eat progress. The common people were still suffering from food shortages, and as long as there was hunger, there would be discontent. By the fall of 1789, Louis XVI had frittered away all of the new popularity he'd earned with his deft response to the revolt in July. The openness to reform he'd demonstrated when he entered the city on the 17th had been the result of a temporary shock, not a permanent change. Almost immediately, he went back to his old tricks, scheming with his reactionary courtiers and undermining the liberals at every turn. It didn't take long for people to notice, and soon the monarchy had returned to its former status as a focal point for popular anger. Poor Parisians reached their boiling point again in October. This time, the catalyst was a slightly odd and probably untrue rumor that the king had thrown a party where he and the queen had openly mocked the opposition and the common people. The most inflammatory detail was that he'd supposedly laughed and cheered while his guards stomped on a tricolor cockade, that revolutionary symbol he'd so dramatically pinned to his hat. It seems a little bit too cartoonishly diabolical to be true, doesn't it? But true or not, Paris was enraged. Early on the 5th of October, mobs began to form again in the poor neighborhoods of the city. This time, it was Parisian women who led the way. What began as a protest against high bread prices snowballed into an armed mob of thousands. After marching around Paris for a few hours, the chant rose up, To Versailles! Quickly, the mob had reached some kind of consensus. They were going to march the half-day's journey to the palace to confront the king directly. The bourgeois city government did not want to see a repeat of the events of July. They still hoped to work with the king, they didn't want to see him harmed or intimidated. So they called on General Lafayette to muster the National Guard and take control of the situation. But, just like the city garrison in July, the rank-and-file soldiers sympathized more with the mob than with their commanders. Faced with the possibility of his men defecting, Lafayette agreed to accompany the marchers to the palace rather than contain them. When the crowd arrived at Versailles, an uneasy standoff began. It was a similar situation to the events at the Bastille, 
The crowd was wary of making such a dangerous, symbolically loaded assault, and the outnumbered guards wanted to avoid escalating the confrontation. And just like at the Bastille, a delegation from the crowd was selected to enter the palace and take their concerns to the king. The mob's demands were actually relatively reasonable. They wanted Louis to listen to their complaints and pledge to do something about the price of food. They also wanted the royal family to return with them to Paris, to live at the Tuileries Palace, which would put him physically closer to the people and further away from the reactionary courtiers at Versailles. They hoped a change in location would create a corresponding change in policy. Amazingly, the meeting actually went pretty well. Louis listened politely, expressed his sympathy, and promised to help. And the women from the crowd seemed grateful simply to be in his presence. According to some accounts, one of them actually fainted. This incident always reminds me of a scene from the movie Frost Nixon. Sam Rockwell plays an idealistic professor who's devoted his life to researching Richard Nixon's crimes and abuses of power. When he finally gets a chance to meet Nixon, another character asks if he'll shake the former president's hand, and Rockwell's character snaps back, Are you kidding me? But then, when the moment actually comes and Richard Nixon is standing in front of him, the professor freezes up, shakes his hand, and stiffly mutters, Mr. President? I think if we're being honest with ourselves, that's how a lot of us would react if we had an opportunity to meet a president or a prime minister, even if it was one that we hated. That dynamic would have been even more intense in the 18th century. The king was a forbidding, mysterious figure. He ruled over everything, but hardly anyone knew what he looked or sounded like. He was infinitely more educated and refined than an average person, so his speech and mannerisms must have seemed impossibly grand and stilted to anyone who was not from the world of the court. And all of this distance and grandeur reinforced the official ideology of the state, that the king was chosen by God to rule over France and act as a personification of the entire country. It was widely believed the king's physical touch was capable of curing certain medical conditions. It's hard to imagine even the most rabid partisan today arguing their party's president or prime minister could cure illnesses with the touch of his hand. We understand our leaders are mortal men and women. That mindset had begun to develop in the 18th century, but it was still new and still competing with that older idea of a monarch as a supernatural figure. So no wonder these women's anger dissipated when they entered the king's presence. The French monarchy had been tarnished by recent political events, but face-to-face, when the king was ensconced in his natural environment at Versailles, it was awe-inspiring. His audience with the marchers ended well, and it must have made the king optimistic about his chances of diffusing this whole situation by force of his presence alone, because next, he went out on a balcony and announced to the crowd that he had decided to fully accept all of the assembly's reform proposals. They might have cheered him if he'd made the same announcement in the summer, but by now it was too little too late. Apparently, Louis' regal aura was only effective on smaller groups. By now it was late in the evening, and some of the crowd dispersed, but the majority prepared to make camp for the night outside the gates of Versailles, including the National Guard militiamen. One other person from outside the gates was allowed in to meet with the king, General Lafayette. With his typical bluster, he bowed low and announced, I have come to die at your majesty's feet. Louis hated such dramatic displays, and he really hated Lafayette. 
He believed all his political problems had been deliberately instigated by a small group of liberals within the upper nobility, and Lafayette was near the top of his list of suspects in this imagined conspiracy. So, he must have found the general's big entrance pretty bizarre. But whatever Louis thought of him, Lafayette was a nobleman from an ancient and eminent family, so he was invited to stay the night. I doubt anyone involved slept much, but there was a lull in the action until early on the morning of the 6th of October. Shortly after dawn, a group of protesters managed to sneak into the palace and began just wandering around looking for the royal family. As the palace guardsmen raced to secure the building, shots rang out. Crowd outside could tell something was up and rushed the gates. Inside, the king and queen took their children to safety in a secret passage while members of the mob poked around their private chambers. It was almost a repeat of that incident from over a century before, from the childhood of the king's ancestor, Louis XIV, in which he'd woken up to find the mobs of Paris in his bedchamber. Part of the reason the Sun King had built Versailles was to avoid such a recurrence, but here it was. Things were looking bad for Louis XVI. Some of the military units guarding the palace were looking shaky. Most were unwilling to engage the mob, some seem inclined to join them. Loyal guards found and secured the royal family and cleared most of the palace of intruders, but there were no more than a few dozen of them against a crowd of thousands, which include many armed and trained members of the Paris militia. How long could they possibly hold out? But after that initial outburst of violence, the situation calmed down. The pace of musket fire slackened, then stopped. Palace guardsmen and members of the mob attempted a crude, shouted negotiation across the no-man's land. With the situation in flux, Lafayette seized the initiative with his usual dramatic flair. He convinced the king to make another appearance on the balcony, this time with Lafayette at his side. This was a big risk, but once Louis was convinced he had to take it to protect his family, he stepped up. Again, credit where credit's due. Lafayette's idealism sometimes overcame his considerable intelligence, but in this case, his sense of political symbolism proved uncanny. The sight of the king standing shoulder to shoulder with one of the leaders of the opposition instantly transformed the situation. Cries of long live the king rang out from people who had been literally tearing his palace guards limb from limb only moments before. The king promised to move to the Tuileries in Paris, and the crowd roared with approval. Lafayette had a showman's instinct, and he milked this moment for all it was worth. He pinned a tricolor cockade to one of the palace guardsmen on the balcony, a counterpoint to that rumor about the guards stomping on a cockade. Again, the mob ate it up. For his next trick, Lafayette brought out Queen Marie Antoinette, one of the few figures at court even less popular than the king. The Marquis made a theatrical bow and kissed her hand. This worked too. Probably for the first time in years, people cheered, long live the queen. True to his word, Louis XVI and his family hastily gathered a few belongings, packed up a carriage, and the mob and the National Guard formed a makeshift procession as the king and queen moved to the Tuileries. The royal family would never return to Versailles. Yet again, this sounds like it could be the end of the story. In public, the king accepted that things had to change, that he had to rule with the consent of the people. But he had no intention of letting this stand. He'd been personally frightened by the events of the 5th and 6th of October. 
He'd feared for his wife and children. That night, Louis began a new intellectual project, an historical study of King Charles I of England, who had chosen to launch a civil war rather than allow Parliament to limit his powers. Louis told Marie Antoinette he would succeed where Charles failed. In public, Louis had given in. In private, he was resolved to take back his birthright and make his tormentors pay. I think that's a good place to stop the narrative for today. Despite his delusions of outdoing Charles Stuart, once Louis and his family arrived in Paris, they were practically under house arrest. The king was almost totally diminished as a political actor in his own right. After October 6, 1789, the king's only real hope of returning to his former position was being installed there by a hostile army. Political reality had passed him by. Meanwhile, Louis's unwanted pushy house guest, the Marquis de Lafayette, was now ascendant. He'd shown up at the palace, loudly proclaiming his desire to humbly serve the king, but had left with his own status greatly increased and the king's diminished. Pretty slick for a self-declared idealist. A little show announcement before we go. You can now vote on topics for the bonus episode. The polls are open for everyone, not just people who donated. There's a link to the Google form on the Patreon page, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash age of Napoleon. They will stay open for one more week after the release of this episode. Come check us out on Facebook or Twitter if you want updates on that kind of stuff, and I also post trivia and the occasional visual aid. The account name on both sites is just Age of Napoleon, no spaces. Next time, we'll continue following the course of the revolution as it becomes more radical and descends into acrimony. In particular, we're going to tackle the always thorny issue of revolutionary violence, hopefully in a way that generates as few angry emails as possible. That's all for now. Thanks for joining me. 